The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program, and it's produced with the support and encouragement of my patrons, listeners who enjoy the show and let me know with a financial high five. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, I'll let you know how at the end of the episode. For this very special milestone episode, I invited someone who's appeared in every single episode, my husband, Ruben Anderson, the voice of the Numinous podcast intro jingle. Ruben is a sustainability consultant who specializes in behavior change and compassionate systems. You can, and you should, find out more about his work at his website, smallanddeliciouslife.com. Ruben interviews me in this episode. We recorded this episode in our shared office at the end of a long day of strawberry picking and processing. So, Carmen, it's been an amazing thing for me to sit across from your desk and watch your podcast develop. And I'm very excited and happy to be here for the recording of the 50th episode. Congratulations. Thank you. I do have some questions, as you may expect. The first one, you've said I'm one of the most spiritual people you know. What is spirituality? To me, spirituality is connection to something that is greater than your human self. So you've described yourself as an atheist, but when you talk about your connection with our garden or uh, with the natural rhythms of the world, there's a kind of eternal nature that I see come over you. It feels like your soul is really speaking to me. It doesn't feel like Reuben who's of the world. It feels like Reuben who is in touch with his ecological self, the self that's woven into all things. And that's what spirituality is and feels like to me. Please recap what Claire's are and tell us a bit about how you experience yours. Okay, first of all, can I just say, you're reminding me right now of my grade nine math teacher, Mr. Fraser, who was pretty buttoned up. So I'm having a hard time taking you serious, <laughs> taking you seriously. Uh, okay, what are the Claire's? So our Claire's are our inner senses. So yes, we have our five senses of, you know, hearing, sight, sound, touch, all of that. And then we also have more subtle senses like uh, direction, temperature, that sort of thing. But our clairs are our inner senses that are in touch with something that doesn't necessarily have to come through our physical bodies. It comes more of a knowingness. So for instance, claircognizance, which is clear knowing. So it's we call it a feeling, but it's not always a sensation in our bodies. Claircognizance is having knowledge without knowing where it came from. 
actually, my Auntie Debbie was a great example of claircognizance. She was, um, this was like quite some time ago, and she lives in a small town, and uh, her husband was working out in in the bush as a big um, logging truck driver. And he would come back into town after being away. My Uncle Mo would be away for like almost a month, and he'd be like, so Deb, what's the news? And she'd be like, oh, this happened and that happened. And one time she told him this pretty incredible story about uh, a company that was going bankrupt and like it was a, it was big news in a small town and so then my uncle Mo would go to the pub and talk to people and they'd all you know be coming in from the bush and so what's the news and and he was like wow did you hear about this you know big news about this company in town and nobody'd heard of it and so he came home and said Deb where did you hear that how do you know that and she was like huh I don't know. <laughs> she totally couldn't remember. And so he's like, oh, well, that's strange. And then a couple of weeks later, it came out in the paper. So then Mo went back out into camp. And this is like quite a long time later. This company, there was like some um, trial going on and there was this court case. And so Mo came in from camp and said, so what's the news? And Deb said, oh, wow, well, it turns out that the secretary was in on it and was, like, embezzling all this money. And he went down to the pub and was like, wow, so this is incredible news. And they're all like, what? Where did you hear that? And Mo was like, damn it, Debbie. And he had to go ask her. And again, she was like, I, I, I don't know how I know that. And, uh, and so then after that, he said, if you don't know how you know, don't tell me anything anymore. So, uh, yeah. So that's that's one example of a Claire. Clairvoyance is the one that most people um, know about, and that's inner vision. So being able to see things really well. Uh, so you might have a scene of past or present or future that you wouldn't have direct visual knowledge of. Um, Claire audience is one that I've experienced, and you know the medical community might call that an auditory hallucination, but when your auditory hallucinations give you really good information about things about to happen, uh, we would call that clairaudience. And it's not always, you know, good information. It can also be, you know, just hearing your name or I've heard music that wasn't there, different things like that, that uh, became a motif. So, I mean, the key with clairs is just trying to... Um, Recognize that all you're doing is expanding your range of perceptions beyond your physical senses. I should actually mention the last one because I said there isn't a physical sensation, but for people who are clairsentient, there is. So clairsentience is when you have a feeling in your body that will correlate to uh, something that you couldn't have direct knowledge of. So again, like somebody might pick up on somebody else's physical wound in their body. And they might be, you know, in a different part of the country and just suddenly have, you know, pain in their chest and then Uncle Wally has a heart attack or whatever. So there's, um, there's a whole bunch of different ones, but those are the main ones. Do you experience all of them? Do I personally? Yes. <laughs> uh, not on a regular basis. And I'm trying to... Hmm. I wouldn't say I'm very clairsentient. Um, I feel a lot in my body, but it's not as specific as um, I think many people who are very good body workers and healers are. Um, I've definitely 
been in different phases in my life, had very strong clairvoyance and clairaudience is very strong for me. And But my dominant clair at this point in my life for the past few years has been claircognizance. Very interesting. Um, you have... Did you know that? Like, would you have... Have you been, like, sitting there across the breakfast table from me being like, I wonder if she can feel what's going on with my pancreas right now? No. Why did you ask that question? Uh, I asked that question because you asked me to interview you for this <laughs> 50th episode. <laughs> and so uh, I, I'm trying to... Uh, maybe this will be an extra boring episode for most of your audience, but it'll be a super interesting episode for the audience you don't yet have, which is people like me <laughs> who don't consider themselves to be spiritual. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I, I was just trying to um, ask questions that uh, interested me. Uh, do you have any more questions for your interviewer? <laughs> All right, uh, Carmen. <clears throat> You have talked about spiritual materialism. What would a spiritual superiority complex look like? First of all, if the person that you're talking to says, I know when that happened to me every single time you share some spiritual experience, I would consider that a superiority complex. Like it's the one-upmanship, right? That, that drives me freaking bananas. Um, I try not to do that. And I don't think I do out in the world. When I'm with clients, I will frequently uh, say things like that, but it's not because, and I'll usually say to them, I, I'm not saying this out of one-upmanship. I just want you to know you're not alone. And, you know, I've experienced it differently, but this is what it was like for me. So, um, yeah, spiritual superiority complex. Uh, you know, I don't spend a lot of time with people like that in my orbit because they're so insecure, I just can't stand it. And I, I tend to run with pretty, pretty solid people. And I don't spend a lot of time worrying about people who are insecure and need to prove themselves. What rituals would you recommend for those who don't think of their experiences as spiritual? Rituals, particularly. Well, I'd probably start with things that are pretty uh, accessible and clo close to home. You're atheist. I didn't grow up... Uh, with religion, <clears throat> but one of the things that we started doing pretty early on was just taking stock of where all of our food was coming from when we sat down to eat. And so there was a kind of reverence for, as John O'Donohue says, the workers and the strangers who uh, brought the food to us. And then we started to grow a lot and we got more and more proud of that. And so then it started to become not quite like a grace, but pretty close to a secular grace of just like everybody kind of stopping in the beginning of a meal and noticing what our hands had touched and being grateful for that. And now that we do it with such frequency, and now sometimes you, you even say, thank you to the workers and the strangers before we eat, I, I would consider that a sacred ritual. And, uh, and I particularly like it. I find it particularly endearing because it's so handmade. It evolved for our family over time. So I wouldn't recommend, you know, scouring the internet for a secular family rituals or anything like that. I would uh, start with symbolism. And so what does something mean to you? 
And what are the connections with that which is greater than yourself that you can make with it? If you were honoring something greater than yourself, how would it know? You know, like leaving food out uh, outside under a tree or something like that for the ancestors while you go back inside and have a party is is you keeping up your end of the dialogue with spirit. And yeah, maybe it gets eaten by raccoons or whatever, but is, you know, is the raccoon any less a miracle than you? The, uh, the John O'Donohue quote is actually quite new in our relationship, uh, and it's, it is very lovely. Um, the, the point I guess I'm trying to get at, the question I'm trying to ask is, based on your experience with a, a broad range of people, uh, is there kind of a typical or an above average first engagement with ritual that, that you see uh, resonating with more people? Uh, I, I don't have any examples of this, but I just think about when I lived in Japan, the Japanese would often put a little pile of salt on either side of the front door. So it was a, a purification uh, ritual. Um, I, I think there's an interesting idea, an interesting counterpoint, that if you set off sacred space, you're calling everything else desecrated space. So that's something to consider. Maybe purification rituals aren't good, but then what do you think would be an excellent or, or a good way for people to engage? Would it be a focusing ritual, which I guess is what you're saying the grace is, or some other, is there something that you've seen stand out more in your, in your work? Well, I think the first thing that I would point out is it's important to sort of separate, or not separate, but just to answer your question, there's the personal ritual and there's the collective ritual. So coming together <clears throat> at uh, the dinner table is our collective ritual. And so there's a kind of bonding that happens in that. And I think it's nice when everybody kind of plays a part and it does evolve over time. Uh, but for the personal ritual, I would have to say that the most powerful uh, ritual that I recommend and that uh, I know a lot of my clients and even my friends really are embracing these days is the home altar. So there's a lot of different ways that you could create an altar and it doesn't necessarily have to have a deity. You might have pictures of all of your elders or your ancestors, you know, the, the people who've died and you might have them somewhere just to honor that. Or you might have an energy that you would like to bring into your home. So you have a picture of it or you have an angel card with that word on it, like serenity. Or maybe you have some special rocks that you found at the, the beach. Or, um, or maybe you have a collection of all of these things. I personally use altars all the time and sometimes it'll stay there for a long time with very minor adjustments. Um, I use, uh, there's, you know, I have a large pantheon of deities. Sometimes it includes, you know, Mary Magdalene. Sometimes it's Bruce Springsteen. It depends on who I'm, what I'm invoking at that time. But uh, I usually have uh, rocks that I collected in the Desert on Vision Quest or crystals or the feather that was given to me by Leonard George and, you know, just things that are special to me. Right now I have uh, a rock that was painted by the women who were on retreat with me and it's my mom rock because they call me mama, which was really odd and weird but awesome for me because, of course, many of the women are much older than I am. 
but uh, that felt really nice to be honored and recognized. And so I'm holding that to keep that feeling alive within me. So I find that uh, it's the ritual you make for yourself and the meaning you assign to it that's the most powerful. The collective ritual is a bit different. There is something then very powerful in surrendering to a celebrant or somebody who who is focusing the ritual for you and guiding you through something that maybe you've never experienced before. And uh, it it's almost like a pattern interrupt in your subconscious when you are not sure what's coming next and you are participating in a collective ritual that is, you know, around whatever, invoking feminine power or releasing or confronting death or fear. And when you have people with you, even people you don't know very well, and sometimes it's even more powerful, people you don't know very well, there's something that happens that is so outside your norm that it imprints your mind and your body and your heart so deeply. Uh, and I think that's what people are talking about and what they're looking for when they talk about transformative experiences. Yeah, I, I don't have a I don't have a an example to focus this with. I the collective ritual again. I, I'm coming from my own perspective. So as someone, I I can imagine well, when we go to Quaker meeting, uh, there's a great deal of collective ritual to that. Um, well, the Quakers would disagree with you. <laughs> of course, they do not abide ritual. But yes, carry on. Um, I. I think, yeah, well, uh, we all engage in collective rituals, whether it's lining up at the coffee shop or, you know, money. Or, or, <laughs> or money or, you know, the way that we alternate cars when we're merging lanes or, or whatever. There's all these collective rituals. But I, I think I'm, I'm trying to ask from a, the perspective of myself, the perspective of someone exactly like me uh, who doesn't conceive of, you know, for, who, for whom entering into ritual is a little bit, kind of freaky um yeah i can't think of anything i would want to ritualize okay I, I guess actually no here's something um i i do i i would like to honor my garden and are you asking me how to do that speak about that a bit <laughs> okay well don't tell me how okay. but speak about it okay so i'll talk about it because i'm baffled by your question right now because you're acting as though you've never ritualized anything and you've never participated in collective ritual. And yet, and yet, Mr. Anderson, uh, when it was rabbit slaughter day, uh, okay, let's contextualize this. So we had friends who raised turkeys but had never slaughtered turkeys before. We were considering getting backyard rabbits uh, to raise for our own humane meat. And we had never slaughtered before, so I thought this would be a wonderful idea for us to go help them, actually not realizing right away that they'd never slaughtered before. I thought we were going to learn from them. But anyway, when I found out that they'd never done it before, I thought they were probably worse off than we are. And so uh, we learned. We went and had turkey slaughter day. And the very first turkey, it was abundantly clear that you and I were going to be the most competent people there and most calm. And we then just kind of took over and, uh, you know, gave orders and uh, we got through the day and it was just fine and, and no more turkeys suffered. Uh, after that, when we had our first uh, slaughter day, 
we started with holding hands and almost all, it was it was very reverent and almost prayerful i would say and then the second time we smudged and i think also maybe the first time you were quite ritualistic with the knives because you have a thing about uh, wanting the knives to be nice and sharp so that no rabbit suffers or you know so that we approach the killing with craft and reverence and so now then we started to invite people to come and slaughter with us because there's lots of people who want to do backyard food and things like that and it's pretty easy to find somebody with chickens but not many with rabbits and what you and I wanted to do pretty much right from the get-go is make sure that we were quite selective at who came and we wanted to set the tone so not only did we smudge, but we did a ritual hand washing. Now, I don't know whose idea that would have been, because you and I are pretty, it's, it's pretty fluid. It was mine, because of the uh, Japanese temple traditions. Okay, perfect. So you were like, yeah, I think we should wash hands. And I said, okay, I've got this beautiful white bowl. We can use my singing bowl, and why don't we do it this way? So I would start with calling in the directions or a prayer for the rabbits, and then... I wash your hands and give you the towel and then you wash the next guy's hands and passed him the towel and he washed the next guy. And these are guys that are like pretty doodly and had never done this before and were completely down with it. So I, again, like, I don't, I don't know. How is that not the most like badass spirituality in the backyard? And it came from you. So you keep having this sort of, uh, starry-eyed, mystified look and approach, and yet you, you are in it and you live it every day. It's, it's interesting to me that you don't identify yourself as someone who practices ritual. It's just the water I swim in. That's just how awesome I am. <laughs> <laughs> Badass backyard spirituality. Um, I was struck when you uh, you reminded me of the attention I gave the knives. Um, and I would like you to talk a bit about using ritual to enter trance states. How did that segue from the knives? I thought you were going to ask me about the Sabbath of the knives. Uh, because I, you know, one of the ways that I understand your work um, because you use a lot of different modalities, but the way that I kind of comprehend them is that they're all manipulations of trance states. So I think of, for example, having an altar as being a, uh, a trigger for a very light trance state. Um, for those of you listening along at home, Carmen is nodding approvingly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I think of, um, you see, you're making me give the answer I wanted you to give. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear it in your mellifluous voice. So I imagine then the, um, the, uh, the ritual of giving attention to the knives, uh, is a trigger. I, I imagine it's a sort of self-hypnosis that triggers you into a trance state which will uh, 
steady your hand, remove uh, distracting thoughts from your mind, um, calm you and prepare you for the slaughter to be as quick and painless as possible. Uh, is there anything I've left out out of your answer? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, let's, you know, just for all the kids at home, let's define what we mean by trance state. So a trance state is just a relaxed state of focused concentration. And that's what hypnosis is. That's what, uh, you know, what we enter into even uh, as we are focusing on going to sleep, right? It's like your brain waves slow down. And when you're in trance, whatever is then before you, whatever what you're calling is the, you know, the trigger, the meaning of it connects with your subconscious without the critical function, meaning there's kind of this filter between your conscious mind and your subconscious mind that's this critical function that sort of keeps them, uh, keeps us in the illusion that there's a semblance of control. By critical, you mean criticizing function? Y yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's critiquing everything, yeah. And so when you are in that relaxed state of focus concentration and you're focusing on the knives and you're uh, sharpening them and honing them and oiling the stone or whatever it is you're doing, you're infusing it with meaning. So whatever it is you're thinking about becomes a, 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 uh, a form of self-hypnosis so that everything you're thinking about is a direct suggestion to your subconscious mind about what you'd like to experience more of, what's meaningful to you, that's affirming and reinforcing your worldview and your, you know, the way you move through the world, which of course then influences how you experience the world and what you experience in the world. So when you are in a ritual, collective or individual, all of the meaning is brought to bear in an instant and your subconscious mind understands the symbolism of it. Which, so when you have an altar, like you said, it triggers that light trance state. So in just in instantaneously, your subconscious mind understands what that rock meant and what that deity means to you and what that, you know, aromatherapy is reminding you of it just all of the meaning is brought to bear in, in a single moment and again it becomes a kind of pattern interrupt so that whatever goes in next goes twice as deep so when we are approaching slaughter day or meal time or whatever it is you know difficult conversations makeup sex whatever it is when you're in that uh, light trance state your subconscious mind assigns a value to whatever it is you're thinking about that's going to be higher than the, the mundane, that's going to be higher than the, the looping of your conscious mind. And so that's how ritual becomes this touchstone in your spiritual life. It's just infused with meaning, and your whole body, mind, and spirit carries the sense memory of it. So this is quite a thought train, but it seems then to me that the uh, Catholics who have a, uh, um, a amulet of St. Christopher hanging from their rearview mirror might actually be better drivers because they will have the experience of, of the symbol uh, helping them focus and get into flow with safe driving. Assuming that that's what they attribute, that's the value they attribute to St. Christopher. But if actually it was their, you know, if their... Uh, 
cranky dad who was, you know, a terrible, angry driver and had road rage all the time also hung a St. Christopher. And then that became sort of a, a graduation rite, you know, a rite of passage when they got their driver's license to have St. Christopher there, uh, then they're going to have a totally different association. So I don't know how, what kind of control group you would need to figure that out. Okay, well, that was uh, super interesting and rambling in a sort of way. <laughs> uh, you said you were expecting me to talk, ask about the Sabbath of the Knives. Would you like to talk about the Sabbath of the Knives? Well, I guess now that you've brought it up. Uh, yeah, the Sabbath of the Knives was a, a secular ritual that we invented together. And so, again, <laughs> that's why I'm so bemused by your seemingly innocent questions about ritual, as though you're such an ingenue. Uh, so the Sabbath of the Knives was actually, it started because <laughs> even though I'm a chef trained at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, I'm really bad at cleaning the knives right after I use them. And I have, you know, we have some, uh, together, the two of us, we not only have a lot of knives, but they're really nice ones. And uh, you take so much care in sharpening them. And then I bash the crap out of them by just leaving them all over. And you said, how can we <laughs> focus your attention on caring for the knives? What kind of ritual would we need to do to give you that kind of pattern interrupt? And I was like, well, we should have a day where we don't use knives and we, you know, treat them gently and we, we, we care for them and we sharpen and hone and then we lay them all out and then we have a big feast and we invite people over potluck but they can't use any knives and then that way we'd really appreciate how important it is to have a good sharp knife and then we started talking about well, what are all the things that you what could you possibly eat without knives and you know there's quite a bit but like you couldn't show up at a potluck with like a pineapple you know or a mango with no knives so yeah, so then we, we did that. We had a party with friends, and they brought their knives, and we all sharpened the knives, and there was a ton. There was, there was a lot of metal. And, uh, and then we also read the poem um, Ode to Scissors by Pablo Neruda, which is about scissors, but really about all, you know, blade, the blade. And, uh, and then we toasted to the knives, and it was really great. It was a, it was a great little party. It's coming up again in September. Uh, I think we decided that we were going to try to do it in August, I thought, on the feast day of St. Barnabas, who is the patron saint of cutlers because he was flayed alive. Um, so, uh, yes, the Sabbath of the Knives was a beautiful, uh, a beautiful feast day. I really enjoyed it. Uh, however, Carmen, when was the last time you washed a knife? <laughs> Actually, it's true. Today, I couldn't find the knife that I wanted. And instead of washing the one, I went to the knife, uh, the special bag we have, like the deep storage of knives and took out of another paring knife because I just it, I just couldn't face washing all the knives that were sitting there. Uh, for the studio audience, I would like to point out that Carmen chose a knife with a broken handle. 
over <laughs> over washing the knives. So uh, I, 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 I we're laughing, and this is uh, <laughs> this is a hilarious bit of tension in our relationship. Uh, but it is um, it's interesting, I think, from the ritual perspective because we we developed a beautiful semi-secular ritual. I say semi if we have it on the feast day of St. Barnabas. Um, we developed this beautiful ritual. It was super fun and meaningful. I really loved the the honor we paid to the knives that day. Uh, it, it was really wonderful. And I did wash knives after that for like a solid six or seven months until we moved. It, 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 you know, even beyond that for a while. So it actually did work. So you can't say, and now you're not washing knives anymore. People say that all the time with hypnotherapy, that like, oh, I tried to quit smoking and, and then I started again five months later. And so it's not like that didn't work. It worked for five months, but you just entered a, a more challenging time of your life and you needed a bit of a booster. So it's not that the ritual didn't work to create a new uh, shift in awareness in our family. It did. It's just it wears off, which is why you have to do rituals again and again. That's where I was going with that. That uh, so, if we have a yearly ritual and it's not quite cutting it, then should we bump it up to a <laughs> a bi yearly, or a semi yearly, or a uh, quarterly ritual? Or that was a good little pun there with the Sabbath of the Lives, not quite cutting it as an annual ritual. So yeah, it needs to be semi annual, maybe okay. or seasonal. Seasonal. That's great. Ooh, we love the seasons. Let's do it by the season. Okay, this is going to require some more consideration. Uh, However, we will do that off air and (laughs) wrap up this 50th anniversary podcast. It's not the 50th anniversary. It's just the first anniversary. The (laughs) The 50th episode, (laughs) the first anniversary of the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. now, Carmen, in one of your most popular public talks, uh, which was at the Victoria Yoga Conference, you started swearing like a sailor and said, happiness. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, now I have to put this under explicit on iTunes. And I've been, I've been holding my F-bombs this whole show. Uh, thanks for nothing. Okay, I'll, I'll say it again. And you can, <laughs> you can bleep out the first one. <laughs> in one of your most popular public talks... <laughs> which was at the Victoria Yoga Conference, you started swearing like a sailor and said, F-bomb happiness. Now, Carmen, the traditional final question for the Numinous Podcast comes from the Proust questionnaire. So, Carmen, what do you consider perfect happiness? I'm glad you asked, Ruben, because, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not actually a big uh, fan of happiness. Uh, the, the last question on the, the, the Numinous podcast is kind of a trick question. It's not a trick question. Of course, there's, you know, it's not like, hey, you're in my club if you also say, eh, I don't really go in for happiness much. But uh, I, I think happiness is uh, sort of fleeting and generally oriented towards um, exterior pleasures. Uh, so I, I go in for satisfaction myself and joy. Uh, I will say this, when I think about the people who've answered that question, there's been some good ones, like Sarah Selecki, the writer. Uh, She was in one of the early shows, like in the first five or so. And she described like a picnic day. And I was like, yeah, 
that's awesome because you and I do a lot of picnics. And then, um, and then even, you know, it's funny because another early show uh, was with Sandra Yancey, who's like very media savvy. So the show itself isn't one of my favorites, but her answer was like awesome. She was like, I said, so Sandra, what do you consider perfect happiness? And she said, saying yes when I want to say yes and no when I want to say no. And I was like, oh, that's so good. Yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty happy. Um, and then recently, Carolyn Baker, she, of course, rocked it by saying, I think happiness, well, she basically tore into happiness as well without saying the F-bomb, uh, which I felt pretty affirmed that one of my icons, one of the thought leaders of our time, uh, answered the same way I would have. So, yeah, I would say pretty much like many of our typical days, you know, it'd probably be quite centered around food and cocktails that we made ourselves. Um, we probably, so, you know, generally speaking in the mornings, you bring me a latte in bed from our vintage espresso machine and like that pretty much starts my day at, you know, pretty much this is the life. Like, this is the life. My hunky husband brings me a latte in bed every morning. Like, that's... What more could a woman really want, aside from, you know, world peace? <laughs> uh, and then we would probably be doing something food-centric uh, together with Mirabella, our daughter, and her dad, Marco, even, probably. would come over, hang out. We'd have different people over that... We could have good talks with maybe James and Elisa, our 100-mile diet rider friends. Uh, we would be probably finishing the meal with some excellent thing I've baked. Like tonight, you and I are going to have strawberry shortcake from strawberries we picked with our friends out in the U-Pick. And, you know, like that that's just pretty dreamy to me. So perfect happiness is pretty much any number of the days I've been living in the last few years with you, my love. Uh, that's supposed to be the last question. However, you brought up something that I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you kind of glossed over the awesomeness of the lattes that I bring you <laughs> so <laughs> regularly in bed. And, uh, <laughs> I would point out also that there's the, nothing that I want more in the morning than a hot Americano brought to me in bed. <laughs> um, you spoke of the uh, of me bringing you a latte um, in bed as being just a great way to start the day, and it it struck me uh, back about our conversation about altars and how altars are these focus points or frame setting devices uh, or trance triggers. So, so, so I, I just I just conceived of the latte as being a mobile altar that there's an altar being carried across the room to you, <laughs> full of latte. <laughs> uh, how would you enhance the power of the latte to set the tone of your day? Or what could you do, you know, it makes me feel like I should put the latte on a saucer more often to make it a little more altar-like. Yes, I have some thoughts on that. So you're saying altar, but what I would say is it already is a ritual. And so the most powerful part of the ritual is the meaning I bring to it. Uh, even, even more so than the meaning you bring to it, perhaps, but for me, in terms of setting the tone for my day. So because I know that you know 
<laughs> that for me, acts of service is one of the highest forms of love. It's a, it's a, for me, that's a very high value um, expression of love, even more than words and gifts and quality time and all the other love languages. And there's more than just the five I know. Uh, but acts of service is really important to me. And I'm not great at acts of service, but uh, you are. And so the other, the, so part of the meaning that my, my mind and my heart and my spirit knows instantly when the coffee comes is you're not a morning person at all. Like, I'm not a morning person, but you're really not a morning person. I don't say that in any insulting way. I think you might proudly almost <laughs> agree with me. And so... Uh, and you bring me my coffee before you make yours. So I don't, aside from the days when my coffee comes with Bailey's, I can't think of anything that would make that a more meaningful ritual. It doesn't matter if it came on China or not. It's that it's coming from you and it's just laden with meaning and love. Okay, so to put a finer point on it, since so much of my own work uh, is around attention and the difficulty of um, uh, of asking people to give their attention to behavior change programs has, has been my work. So we all know, for all, I'm a wonderful guy, and of course you can't help but de be deeply in love with me when I bring you a latte in the morning. We, we all know that, you know, sometimes we stay up too late on a Netflix bender and we're super, we feel like zombies the next morning. Sometimes you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed or you're, you're waking up worrying about all the work you have to do. And so frequently that, uh, the latte, and, I, and I'm, I don't mean the latte specifically, but there's so many things in our life that we should be worshiping that we actually gloss over or we, we don't give the attention to the reverence they deserve. This is the paradox of the human, right? Is that we want more of everything all the frickin' time. Like, so it's always got to be enhanced. You know, we want enhanced reality and we want every moment to last longer and all of that. Fortunately, every moment is fleeting. Everyone's going to die everyone's going to feel pain and loss. And, and that's what makes the uh, beauty more acute. It makes your heart wince when you know that it's fleeting. That's what's so beautiful about adolescence. You know, it's like, oh, it's so awkward and gorgeous and just like <laughs> terrible and amazing at the same time, right? And so why would we want the, the sacred more than what is offered. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of tension, right, uh, in being human that we know that we, we know on some level, even Mr. Atheist here is like, knows on some level that there's a beauty in worship and there's a, uh, a, a redemption and a transcendence that comes when we offer ourselves up to something that is greater than ourselves. And we may not think that always just walking down the street, but you know, the saying, everybody believes in God in a foxhole, right? So it's like push comes to shove. Most people want to believe that there's something greater than themselves that at times perhaps carries them through. But we can't live in that because we're human and we're meant to experience separateness. 
we're meant to experience loss and pain, and that's very difficult for people to accept, that if there is a God, it wants you to hurt, because you need to hurt in order to grow and love and appreciate and experience the entire breadth and depth, like I said in my yoga conference video. We're meant to experience the entire breadth and depth that life has to offer, and that includes excruciating pain. The most beautiful part of you... (laughs) The most beautiful part of you bringing me a latte every morning is that someday it won't come, and it'll never come again. Where do you want to take this now? (laughs) I think that's just the right place to leave it. Okay. Thank you very much for making me cry. (laughs) Something you visited on so many others. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Touche. Thank you for having me, Carmen. Thanks for being here. He warmed up by the end there, didn't he? He was obviously taking this task very seriously, uh, but he got more relaxed as we went along. So I really want to thank Ruben very much for coming on the show and preparing to interview me. And thank you so much for spending this time with me today. In particular, I'd like to send a special happy birthday greeting to the Numinous Podcast number one fan, Charlene in Hong Kong, who's been listening consistently since the first episode. As I said, it's her birthday, and so I'd like to send her a little blessing from John O'Donohue because I know that she's in a transition time in her life. Blessed be the longing that brought you here and quickens your soul with wonder. May you have the courage to listen to the voice of desire that disturbs you when you've settled for something safe. May you have the wisdom to enter generously into your own unease to discover the new direction your longing wants you to take. May the forms of your belonging in love, creativity, and friendship be equal to the grandeur and the call of your soul. And it's a majestic soul that she has, absolutely. So happy birthday, Charlene. I'd also like to thank all the listeners in Brazil. I cannot believe I have listeners in Brazil. Please reach out to me so that I have someone to stay with when I come to Rio someday. Thank you very much for spending time with me. For all of today's show notes, just go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A, and just click the link for the podcast. And that's where you'll find information about becoming a patron. If you like the show, you can let me know with as little as a dollar per episode. Finally, to ensure you never miss an episode, sign up for notifications at the bottom of my website. Until next time, take care. Are you like Michael Wallace? So, so.